Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, your freshest wrap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you may not have heard on your airwaves. First up, we're talking to Sydney Sarang, one of the lawyers who helped authorise the Black Lives Matter protests last weekend, right in the nick of time. She'll be discussing her involvement in the case before the Supreme Court and its subsequent appeal. After that, we have our reporter, Eamon Snow, investigating how a viral hashtag sparked a conspiracy theory around the deadly bushfires earlier this year. That's right, but first up, we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter protests? Did you attend last week? What do you think about people, you know, protesting during corona? We want to hear from you. Join in on the conversation. Text us in on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. So last weekend, Sydney's Black Lives Matter protest was authorised by the Supreme Court in the nick of time, despite a campaign from New South Wales Police to stop it from going ahead on the grounds of public health concerns. Some say there's been a double standard, especially since 5G conspiracy gatherings were allowed to take a place uh, were allowed to take place a week before that. That's right. Another protest, a rally for refugee rights, has come up against a similar roadblock. As it stands, the Supreme Court has prohibited that rally from taking place today. We're joined by lawyer Sydney Sarang from O'Brien Solicitors, who worked on both cases before the Supreme Court, and she's with us to share the reasoning behind these judgments. Hi, Sydney. Thanks for joining us. Oh, hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. It's pleasure. A- absolute pleasure to have you on, too. So tell us about your involvement in the Black Lives Matter case. Yeah, of course. Well, basically, just picture my involvement as a small cog or screw, if you will, that's pushed into one of these crevices of an incredibly impressive wheel. Um, Firstly, my boss, Peter O'Brien, he's an incredible human rights advocate um, and criminal defence lawyer. He was involved in the Dylan Boller case in the Northern Territory. And my co-worker as well, who I'd like to call my comrade in this present time of revolution, Elliot Rowe, um, he's an annoyingly gifted and incredibly intelligent lawyer, um, born and bred in Canberra, so I'm also often running to him as a baby lawyer so he can break down what are undoubtedly basic concepts for him, for me to understand on an even more basic level. So following on from that, um, we have two incredible barristers by the names of Stephen Lawrence and Felicity Graham, who ran the appeal. And um, also shout out to Emmanuel Kokasharian, who fought for the rally case on the first instance um, that Friday night. Um, He didn't sit down for like two hours, it seems, just fighting on the point, even when all seemed lost anyway, just honing in on the fundamentals of the right to protest, really. So um, for the appeal, along with Elliot, we were essentially instructing solicitors to Stephen and Felicity And what that jargon basically means is often in legal cases where it's the Supreme Court or Court of Appeal, you have barristers, the ones with the wigs and the robes, who also work with solicitors who, thanks to quarantine life, would be in half suits and half PJs and, you know, teamwork makes the dream work. So, um, yeah, and um, I'm actually embarrassed at how late I figured this out, guys, but um, it was because of one of my colleagues, Fatima Ralph, who informed me the three of these barristers have their own podcast called The Wigs, and it's on Spotify. 
I think they've just finished their first season, but they've discussed things like the Pell case to strip searching and they've just released the one on the Black Lives Matter protest um, last Saturday. So if you want to give that a stream, enter a whole new world where, you know, this holy trinity of barristers break down what happened last Saturday, I'd give that a listen to. Brilliant. We'll definitely link that out. Um, Sydney, were you concerned the Supreme Court decision wouldn't be in your favour? Yes, absolutely. Look, we always thought it would be a challenge, um, considering the difficult times. Uh, I mean, these are unprecedented, unprecedented restrictions on our lives that um, these generations, well, certainly not my own, um, have had to experience ever. I was born in 1993. I certainly don't remember a lockdown period in my life, apart from my immigrant father refusing me to go out to Hoyt <laughs> or East Gardens, Westfield, to hang out with friends when I was in year eight or nine, but I digress, but... um. We, we thought it would be a challenge. We always thought it would be a challenge. Tens of thousands of people turned out in solidarity for the Black Lives Matter movement in Sydney last weekend, and they did that, risking the consequences of it being an unauthorised protest at the time, like, you know, being fined, being arrested, potential violent clashes with police. And, yeah, we, we were concerned about people not being able to protest safely and not being able to have their voices heard about the injustices and brutality of the criminal justice system when it comes to our Indigenous people in this country. And, um, you know, one of the key arguments that was made in the first hearing for the Black Lives Matter protest before the Supreme Court was that it was clear that the protest was going ahead anyway, that, that many people believed this issue was so urgent and they would risk arrest to shine a light on the injustice of black deaths in custody and that it would be safer to authorise the protest so that people could spread out on the road, you know, not be squashed onto footpaths or face the close physical contact involved in making arrests. And um, Emmanuel, who was the first barrister on the first night um, when we were let down, um, he he said something to his honour when, when he was queried, you know, about why can't this protest be delayed? You know, guys, let's just hold off until COVID restrictions are done with. And Emmanuel was just like, well, the time is now. This is happening across the world in much more articulate terms. But he basically said an action is not an action that we can take. This, this cannot be delayed. And that was the argument that was rejected by the first judge who dealt with it the first time. So how did the appeal come about in such a short amount of time? I know you've just touched on that, but can you elaborate? Yeah. Of course. Look, ladies, one word, chaotic. Um, <laughs> it's quite unusual for cases to be heard from start to finish so quickly. Um, I worked with my boss, Peter, and my comrade, Elliot, and also Felicity and Stephen to bring the case to the Court of Appeal. Again, obviously, this whole thing is, like, not live. So on Friday, when we lost, so to speak, I had ventured out. By the way, I know it's live. <laughs> I had ventured out with my colleague, Elliot, and we felt inclined to, you know, commiserate the loss that was Friday. We thought, that's it, end of the line. Um, but things really kicked off early Saturday morning with a flurry of phone calls between the legal team, the protest organiser, Mr. Raul Bassi. Um, just to put things in perspective, my boss rang me at about 8.45am on Saturday morning, um, of which I jolted awake delirious, and he was like, Sydney, myself and two barristers are thinking we should appeal. Are you up for it? And, like... I really love sleep, but I always thought it would be a comical juncture in my life that would never happen in the history of ever where I'm confronted with a sleep-in on Saturday and something like, I don't know, civil liberties. So <laughs> I was like, you know, it's like one of those classical motivational poses. It's like, grind, don't stop unless you do, or sleep when you're dead, or dreams don't work if you give up. Look, maybe these are just motivational posters every junior lawyer has as their screensaver, but um, I certainly won't forget this pivotal moment. I told my boss I'll be 100% all hands on deck and, you know, um, when 2020 gives you lemons, you just 
you know, I guess make lemonade after battling for it in the supermarkets during Corona time. But <laughs> basically, after that moment, my colleague Elliot um, called the security at the courthouse. And this is all on a Saturday, guys. So we, we wanted to let them know we want to bring an appeal and to try to reach someone at the court to let the appeal judges know we wanted to bring the case to be heard that Saturday. Um, it was so comical. I mean, everything felt like a Monty Python skit. It was just myself and Elliot walking into the office at 10 a.m. on a Saturday. No expectation, really, that anything could come about that day, as demoralizing as that sounds. So we had Elliot making calls, the barristers Felicity and Stephen making calls, my boss Peter making calls. I even reached out to a friend of mine, Usman, who, uh, because he's an associate to a judge, and I just wanted to see if he knew someone who knew someone who also knew someone. So um, eventually, by about 12.30, the court told us they would hear the appeal just before 2 p.m., and the protest was set to start at 3 p.m., and the barristers arguing the appeal spoke for about 15 minutes each, and then the judges took about five minutes to give their decision, and the appeal was allowed at about 2.45 p.m. Wow. I mean, huge congrats to you and your team for all the amazing work you've done so quickly. Um, Sydney, just how significant was the appeal for people's right to protest? Absolutely. Look, public enemy said it first, guys, fight the power. Um, <laughs> the appeal meant that people could protest peacefully last weekend um, without the threat of arrest or worse from the police. You know, it demonstrates how fundamental and significant the right to protest and assembly is and that the right to protest and freedom of political expression, it's an essential part of the fabric of a democratic society. Um, you know, and the police commissioner should pay heed to these important liberties and facilitate them rather than stifle them. It was very important for the movement, you know, that it was successful. But the law hasn't changed. Um, the appeal decision, you know, it wasn't like a precedent that every other case needs to now follow. But it is a helpful statement from the highest court in the jurisdiction about how, you know, the importance of complying with the provisions, you know, in order for protests and demonstrations to be held lawful, basically. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swetha and Shami. We're speaking with lawyer Sydney Sarang about the legal case for large protests in Sydney as Sydney tries to flatten the curve of coronavirus. That's right. Earlier on, we asked you for your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter protests, and we've got some texts in. So Alana from Liverpool says, maybe police and politicians should actually engage with what protesters are saying instead of telling them to stop. I mean, yeah, yeah absolutely. Why not? Yes. <laughs> and uh, this is an interesting one. You know, someone texted in. They said, they're letting in 10,000 people in stadiums now. How does this make sense? And I, I think that's a really, really good point that they bring up. You know, we're talking about the NRL coming back. Um, but, you know, people are super against the protests. You know, the PM is now planning on scrapping the 100-person limit for indoor venues and 5G conspiracy protests were allowed to go ahead unhindered a couple of weeks ago. Yet there's still opposition to the Refugee and Black Lives Matter rallies. What do you make of this, Sydney? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just, I can't believe this stadium thing, seriously. This mm. is just the day of the Black Lives Matter protest. I think there was a photo circulating of the North Sydney market, which also had thousands of people there. So it's like, where do we draw the line, guys? You know, um, the, um, the Refugee uh, rally, we were also a part of, and that was um, just, you know, this week, essentially. And they, the Refugee Rally and the Black Lives Matter protests, ha uh, protests have different factual circumstances. Um, the refugee case was basically balanced on almost the same considerations, but that went in favour um, of the police commissioner for RACS. Um, however, the, the Black Lives Matter protest, it was essentially an error of law, you know, established um, by the Court of Appeal um, because, you know, they've held that the police commissioner 
um, didn't follow correct procedure, basically. And look, I was disappointed by that outcome too because it's funny when you look at it from outside a legal perspective. You see a rally of 5,000 people being allowed, yet a modest size of about 180 or even 200 at the most for racks being deemed as an absolute health hazard and risk for society to come together to rally against, you know, the ongoing insufferable treatment of refugees and asylum seekers in this country. I would be like, what's going on? Like, why this? But... You know, James Stuffel, who's the organiser um, of the RACS protest, he was incredible on stand. He was very well-spoken. You know, you have to picture a barrister who's very learned in the law, phrases questions in particular ways for you to give a strict yes or no response. But James was basically like, RACS and I do not think we're above the law. Yes, you know, we care about COVID. We have measures in place. But we also care about refugees languishing in prison um, and detention centres who perhaps don't get the privilege of social distancing, masks and hand sanitizer. And um, I saw on Twitter recently that Fazel Shavanian, an Iranian refugee in his early 30s, he was found dead at the bottom of a cliff on Christmas Island. I mean, we want to talk about an authorised assembly. There is a deeply rotten core that is swept under the rug to the truth of the assembling of Australia in itself, you know, its colonial past trickling into its present-day treatment of First Nations people. So you mentioned a bit earlier how the Black Lives Matter rally, the outcome from the Supreme Court didn't actually set a precedent for any future rallies. Can you expand on that? What did you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's um, it, they were different circumstances. Um, it's, it's not something that's a precedent that they can essentially follow. Um, it, it, it's essentially uh, what it is, is the Supreme Court decision was overturned and it's not something that could be followed in the next instance because they were factually different cases. Um, and, you know, as I've said before, like, it, it's, it's easy to see from an outside perspective, you know, you let 5,000 people protest, why can't they just look at the appeal and think, oh, you know, why can't we let 200 protests for refugee um, organisers to go ahead? But unfortunately, it's just when, you know, the intricacies of the law just wouldn't allow for that. So that's the reason for that. So can we take this moment to clear up some legal terminology? A number of people have been saying the protests have been banned or stopped. Are these the correct terms? Yep. Um, So the Summary Offences Act, basically, it gives extra protection to people who get together um, from being charged. Things such as walking onto roads, you know. At this present time where you have a health order in place where there is a provision, you know, you would be fined for having breached it, um, the one thing you could have is protection. So if there was an authorised group of people coming together, the police would need to facilitate that, not seek to arrest people, pepper spray people, taser people. There is nothing prohibiting groups of people other than at this time, say, for instance, you know, there's a health order in place, um, from assembling. They just wouldn't be afforded the same protections, like if they were given a move-on direction by the police and they were on the road, which is where people want to be, you know, where the cars are meant to be. So that would be a breach of road rules, technically. So the courts do not have a power to ban or stop protests, but if a protest is deemed what is authorised, then anyone who goes along and participates in the protest has an immunity or protection from being prosecuted for offences like blocking traffic. Mm. And in the current situation, you know, the public health directions that would otherwise stop people gathering in large groups. If a protest is not authorised, it doesn't mean it can't go ahead. It just means anyone involved in the protest risks potentially being fined or moved on or arrested by police for breaching the public health direction or if marching on the road, for example, is obstructing traffic. traffic. And, you know, Central Station, um, just before I think the appeal... Um, had been successful. It was a perfect example of what was going on, I think, just before it was announced. The 
Sydney Morning Herald photos were shocking. Um, I should say we've had a few people reach out to our firm with respect to running, you know, civil actions against the police that afternoon on 6 June. And I encourage anyone who's listening to this who has been impacted by excessive police force to reach out to O'Brien solicitors. Um, and, I mean, my boss tweeted already he's ready to hashtag sue the blue for instant victims. <laughs> so very quickly... Uh And to add from just what you've said, on Thursday, the Supreme Court prohibited today's rally about refugee rights. What does that mean for people who want to attend? Yeah, of course. And and is this with respect to the rally that occurred last night? I think it was. Did it occur last night? There's one today, right? I think there's one today. Yeah, that's right. I think so. The one today, the refugee um, rally today, there was also one last night that wasn't authorised. The one that's um, today, so I mean, as I said, the appeal case—it's—it's. It's, um, we weren't. Uh, we unfortunately weren't successful with the refugee case on the first instance, um, and unfortunately, we'd have to seek, you know, further advice as far as appealing it. But you know, there was there was no um, with respect to the refugee rally going ahead. Um, you know, the difference was that the correct procedure. Um, wasn't complied with um, as far as the Black Lives Matter protest and the refugee protest. This was different because when push came to shove in the refugee case, it was about a balancing exercise of the right to protest and, you know, the balancing exercise of the current pandemic that's going on at the moment. You know, unfortunately, it just seems that, you know, people think that there's a view that, you know, all refugees can wait, maybe just write a Facebook status about your disgruntled, you know, opinions on the state of Australia's treatment of refugees, Um, you know, and I suppose fundamentally at the end of the day, the refugee movement is a movement that is incredibly important alongside the Black Lives Matter movement as well. Um, You know, the treatment of refugees in Australian detention centres offshore and onshore, it's, it's been an ongoing plight in this country in tandem with the treatment of Indigenous peoples as well. You know what, Sydney, we could talk to you all day, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much for speaking to us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. That was Sydney Sarang, a lawyer with O'Brien Solicitors on the legality of Sydney's racial equality protests. That's right, but don't turn that down. We've got an investigation into, get this, Twitter bots and the country's deadly bushfires that happened earlier this year. Coming right up next. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. So what an unpredictable year it's been so far. And we're only halfway through. Oh I, I cannot believe that, you know, our d- disastrous bushfire season was only in January, so just mm-hmm. only a couple of months ago. With hearings from the Royal Commission's resuming next week, we're reflecting on a sly player in this natural disaster, Twitter bots. Twitter bots, that's right. Hashtags about arson sparked debate about the true cause of this year's Black Summer. Our reporter Eamon Snow dug deep on online disinformation and how it can sway the Australian public. This is Eamon. In January this year, as unprecedented bushfires spread through our country, something else was spreading across our social networks. Seemingly overnight, the arson emergency hashtag began to trend on Twitter. And with that, a new explanation of Australia's Black Summer was born. The narrative was pretty simple. Arson, not climate change, was responsible for the raging infernos that would claim dozens of lives, thousands of homes, millions of hectares and over a billion animals. There were also attacks on the Australian Greens and accusations that they too had some responsibility for the severity of the fires. 
These claims were not new, and both had already been fact-checked and proven false. What was new, at least to Australia, was how this message was circulated. The hashtag arson emergency was being spread by an army of bots. Fake news and bots. Twitter bots. Computerised bots. As a study by the Queensland University of Technology would later find, Twitter bots had been spreading this message across Australian online spaces. So what is a bot? How do they work? And what, if any, impact are they having on our society and our politics? Uh, what is a bot? Um, well, a bot is an automated piece of software that's designed to do something. And I guess in a social media context, you probably see it on, say, Twitter, when you um, might put in a specific keyword and then you'll have a bot that might retweet that or might come back with an alternate message um, or they might be bot accounts, so they're just fake accounts that go around following people. That's Lindsay Jackson, the chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia, a digital rights organisation that's been around for 25 years. Naturally, she's very familiar with bots, and right from the get-go, she wants to explain that not all bots are bad. A bot is a piece of computer code, so generally you hit play and it will act or react depending on what the code is telling it. People that like to code and people that like to create things create bots for a whole range of different reasons. And often there'll be really good reasons. Sometimes it'll just be because they can. I mean, you can create Twitter bots that are spreading good information or frivolous information. So no, in, in no ways is it always nefarious. In fact, you probably encounter bots a lot more than you think. That customer service rep that pops up in a chat window as soon as you open a website It isn't really an overly enthusiastic employee. It's a bot. And what about that text you get from Australia Post the day your parcel is due to arrive? Well, that's a bot too. On Twitter, many companies and news organisations use bots to publish their tweets with links to new products, articles and information. But as the arson emergency saga proved, we're increasingly seeing more unscrupulous bots inundate our social media feeds. Dr. Tobias Keller is a visiting researcher at QUT, and he helped spearhead the research on the Twitter response to our Black Summer. So what we did in what we called the Austin Emergency Project was that we stumbled upon quite a few accounts that looked suspicious when we were doing research on Twitter. And what we found was that those accounts that uh, tweeted about Austin Emergency seemed to, to behave more often similarly like bots and trolls than those accounts that tweeted about uh, more objective hashtags like Bushfire Australia and Australia Fire. This is something Australia hadn't seen too much of, at least on such a large scale and in such an important time. Overseas, Twitter bots were already leaving their mark on things, like the 2016 US presidential election, gun control debates, Brexit, Catalonian independence and a number of European elections, to name just a few. More recently, it's believed bots have been spreading misinformation on COVID-19. So, who's behind these bots? Well, finding that out could be tricky. Sometimes it's political parties themselves. Other times it's well-resourced companies trying to push an agenda. But as Lindsay points out, with the right skills, some people can even set up a team of bots on their own and from home. If you know how to code um, or you're a good enough coder, then you can kind of make anything really if if the platform allows it and if there's information about how to hook into it. You certainly don't need to have a whole lot of money to do this stuff. It's this democratization of bot operation combined with technological breakthroughs in artificial intelligence that has seen online bots become so prevalent. 
The increasing presence of the bad bots in our online spaces presents a conundrum for social media giants like Twitter and Facebook. It's really hard with these political debates. It's it's hard for them to track all the information, to track all the facts. And they see themselves as intermediaries. So they just want to provide a platform for people to talk and they don't want to, to engage or to play an active role. Twitter and all other platforms should have stood up of fraud misinformation during the Austin emergency case earlier and quicker. But I think they thought there are just too many climate denialists, even in high rank political positions, and they don't want to enter this discourse. There's no doubt that bots are contributing to the spread of misinformation online. But are bots actually influencing individual opinion? Cameron Wilson is a freelance journalist who reported on online spaces for the now defunct BuzzFeed Australia. He questions how influential bots really are in their current form. When people talk about bots, they often say they are these tools that can be used to influence public debate. But I think there is also a question about just how effective they are. Because if you see a bot, they tend to be pretty blunt instruments. You, you often see, you know, these Twitter accounts with not many followers who are tweeting sometimes hundreds of thousands of times an hour, if you look at their account, you pretty instantly know that they're not a sophisticated tool that would convince people. But really, they're just, you know, often ways to, you know, get certain terms trending or up the likes and or or faves and retweet counts of um, certain posts to kind of make sure more people see them and also to kind of give them the, oh, you know, people agree with this. He certainly doesn't believe they're harmless, but when it comes to the spread of misinformation, Cameron thinks we have bigger fish to fry. Maybe they influence debates a little bit, but really there are much bigger forces at play. For instance, you know, mainstream media, like when the Australian is putting out 75% of articles that deny climate change, and you know, they are the biggest media organisation in Australia, that's a much bigger impact than, say, you know, potentially some um, Russian teams running bots or whatever. I think you're probably much more likely to have your opinion affected if, say, a friend or someone you respect shares misinformation. Dr. Keller agrees, telling me that bots are actually only part of the story when it comes to misinformation online. If we talk about uh, disinformation campaigns in general, we have to think of a lot of human-run accounts or sock puppets accounts. So one human can have 10 accounts and can use them all at the same time. These are not bot accounts because they're not automated. But if they are set up or used to create a certain environment, then it's clearly malicious behavior and these are then troll accounts. Whether it's bots, trolls, established media, or just a super opinionated relative flooding your feed with conspiracy theories, misinformation has fast become one of our greatest enemies online, with AI development showing no signs of slowing and a general lack of trust in traditional institutions. This enemy is set to only grow in power and influence. I think that bots in the future could be a really massive problem. What's this kind of future where when technology gets so good that We can have bots that are so sophisticated that they can essentially imitate a person completely. And, you know, what happens to online life when you don't know whether someone is real or not and there's no way to distinguish? What can we do to avoid being duped by bots and fake news? Dr. Keller believes we should be questioning more and reacting less. 
a lot of misinformation is, is simply doesn't rely on any fact or doesn't provide a source. And it's important for everyone to be skeptical and critical if they hear something sensational or good sounding but doesn't have any evidence, they should be skeptical and always double check and also to be less emotionally driven. So if you read something and get very emotional about conspiracy theory, for example, don't share it or don't spread it initially. So next time you go to hit that share or retweet button, maybe give it a second look. That was Backchat reporter Eamon Snow on Twitter bots and how social media has sparked malicious information on the bushfires this year. That's right. Well, that's all we've got time for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim and Nicole Iliogoyeva. And thanks again to our guests, Sydney Sarang and our reporter, Eamon Snow. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song. That is right. We're going to play a banger I've been playing all week. This is by Joey Badass and Schoolboy Q. This is Rockabye Baby. Uh, bit of a language warning on this one, guys. Have a great weekend. Bye.